So we've been in this series for the past couple of weeks of working our way through Matthew. I usually go through books in the Bible really quickly, but I've decided to take Matthew a little bit slower, primarily for this one reason. Every time we encounter Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, but every time we encounter Jesus, he is different than what we expect. We sang a song this morning where it basically said, you're never going to let me down. And that passage is true, that that line in the song is true biblically. God never lets us down. But that passage is not true experientially. We often go through life where it feels like God has let us down. And the big problem with that is that we expected a kind of God that He doesn't want to be. We expected a vending machine God, or we expected a I'll make your life better kind of God, and that's not the kind of God he is. Remember, he's been around for infinity before you were, and he will continue to be around from infinity after today, and so he has very little reason to care about you. The fact that he cares about you is amazing. It's an amazing expression of God's love and His grace that He would care about us at all. But the problem is not that God lets us down. The problem is that we have expectations about God that He never intended to keep. And when we read the book of Matthew, we see this time and time again. Jesus doesn't just fail to meet our expectations. He literally ignores them. When John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we keep waiting? This is what we covered last week. Jesus literally referred to the Old Testament passage that says, I will let the captives free, and he skipped over the part that says, I will let the captives free, while John is in prison. He's the one in prison who asks the question, should we continue to wait? And Jesus' response to John literally ignores the thing that John is most concerned about. Jesus doesn't just fail to meet our expectations, sometimes he just flat out ignores them. And last week put us primarily in the middle of a quandary. Are we willing to follow Jesus? Are are we willing to accept Jesus for who he is or for our version of him? And one of the most fascinating things about last week's study is that when Jesus talked to John, he used some code words from the Old Testament that indicated something beyond anyone's imagination. Jesus referred to an Old Testament passage as if it talked about him, but the Old Testament passage actually talks about God. By doing that, Jesus was saying to John the Baptist, Psst, by the way, I'm actually God in the flesh. And it wasn't just that. Remember later on, Jesus referred to the temple when he was talking to the Pharisees. And he said to the Pharisees, someone greater than the temple is here. Well, the temple was the house of God. So what could be greater than the house of God than a person who is literally the embodiment of the house of God? But a better house, a house that actually is God on the earth. The flesh of Jesus was way better than the temple that Solomon built or the temple that Herod built or anything like that. And so when Jesus says that he is better than the temple, he is claiming to be God in the flesh. 
And then later on, Jesus talked about the Sabbath, and he said, I will give you rest, not the law, not the Sabbath law. In fact, Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Who's the one who gave us the Sabbath? God himself, command number four, in the list of the ten. And Jesus says that he is the Lord over that law, which means Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the God of the burning bush in flesh. Now let's just be blunt If you are a Christian, you have heard this concept before. But if you are not a Christian, if you have not accepted Jesus in that way, this is the most ludicrous claim of any religious system ever in the history of humanity. That a human being would claim to be God. We have no reason to believe him except for the fact that he predicts his death and resurrection and then pulls it off. If anyone else can do that after they claim to be God, I'm interested. But for the time being, no one has. And so Jesus is the only one. And that leaves us with this interesting phrase from last time. I want to share it with you again. I'll put it up here on the screen. This is from last time, Matthew chapter 12, 13 to 14. Jesus said to this man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And you think, oh, this is great. Jesus healed. He has the power to heal. Other people have the power to heal, right? But Jesus also healed on the Sabbath, claiming he had authority over the Sabbath. And so he's using some power to heal a person on the day that no one was supposed to be doing healing according to the way they all interpreted God's law. So therefore, Jesus couldn't be doing this by the power of God because God wouldn't desecrate his own Sabbath, would he? But that's actually the point. Jesus says, I have the authority to do anything I want on the Sabbath, and so I'm going to heal this guy. And because of his audacity, because of his claim to be God in the flesh, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. At the end of last week, we come face to face with this idea that Jesus is God in the flesh. And face to face with the question of can you accept it? That is an incredibly difficult thing to accept. Because you see, Jesus is less than we expect. We expected a king of power who was going to fight our battles. But he's more than we expect. We expected a human being who would be a king and powerful and fight our battles. And Jesus claims to be God, and yet he doesn't enter into our squabbles and solve all our problems. Jesus is less than, and he's more than, and the question for us is, will we accept him? Listen, human beings have for centuries, for millennia, taken religious systems piece by piece for their own benefit. And we have been doing it with Jesus also. There are three ways people have responded to Jesus so far in history. I mean, everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Everyone wants to be able to say that Jesus is like, he's the guy, everybody loves this guy, and so I love him too. Everyone wants a little piece of Jesus. You rarely hear anyone from a stage or on a microphone or anywhere else in our society say anything negative or disparaging about Jesus, right? They always say, well, he's a good man, he's a good teacher. No one wants to say anything bad about Jesus. Everybody wants a little piece of Jesus. We've been doing this thing with our religious systems for millennials millennia. But specifically, there are three ways that people try to get a piece of Jesus. Number one, some people adopt him. What they'll do is they'll just take Jesus 
and they'll claim that Jesus is on their side. I've adopted Jesus as my right-hand man. I've adopted Jesus as my co-pilot. I've adopted Jesus as my something or other. You might see a person with a little fish on their car. They carry their Bible into work. Everything they do is like acting like they're a follower of Jesus. They go to church. But during the week, they beat their children. During the week, they curse out a co-worker. When no one's looking, they cheat on their taxes. We've all experienced the hypocrisy of a person who adopts Jesus, but that's not what Jesus is all about. We all understand that's not right. There's a second response. Sometimes people can adapt Jesus. Well, they'll take the words that Jesus speaks, or more specifically, they'll take the words of love that Jesus speaks, but they'll ignore his words of judgment. Or another group of people might take his words of judgment and ignore his words of love. You've encountered these people, I know. Some people will adapt Jesus in that they aren't paying attention so much to his words, they'll pay attention to his actions. And all the times he healed people, and they'll think that that's just what Jesus is. He's just a healing machine. And then other people will take all the times that Jesus was inactive and say, no, 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 Jesus isn't just here to meet your needs. He does, it, he does his own thing. And so they'll take a little piece or a little piece or a little bit, and they adapt Jesus to their own ideas. Or some people actually accept him. And see, the truth of the matter is, you can't follow Jesus unless you accept him. Now, let me be very clear. That statement is a very trite Christian statement. It's a kind of statement I learned when I was a kindergartner. It's the kind of statement I learned when I was in Sunday school. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to accept him. I was told as a little kid, what you need to do is you need to pray a special prayer. It has these particular kinds of words that say, Jesus, I accept you into my heart. I receive you into my heart. Something along those lines. And so Christians know this. You can't really follow Jesus until you accept him. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. There's just one problem. We have completely misunderstood the word acceptance. And so we've completely misunderstood the word following. Let me just illustrate to you what I mean. When you are on Twitter, you follow people, right? You follow people on Twitter until that person says the thing that bugs you and then you unfollow them, right? When you're on Facebook, you follow a person on Facebook and then they say the thing that bugs you and then you unfollow them. On, you, you might keep them as your friend, don't get me wrong. You don't want them to know that you have unfollowed them and Facebook doesn't report that you have unfollowed them and so you can keep it all a secret here, but you have unfollowed them because they said something you didn't like. And what that means is you never were following them in the first place because you were never accepting them. You were only accepting pieces of them. You were accepting the parts of them that lined up with you, and you were rejecting the parts of them that didn't line up with you, and when too many of the parts of them that don't line up with you show up on your feed, you decide to unfollow them because you were never following them in the beginning. Let's just be honest with each other. If I accept you, then it doesn't matter what you say next. Right? Because I accept you. I'm not just accepting the parts of you that I've already learned. I accept you. If I accept you, then I need to accept the things you haven't yet said. And if I follow you, that means I'm choosing to pay attention to you no matter what you say next. Because listen, if the king gives you a command you didn't expect, 
you don't all of a sudden now have a new opportunity to choose whether he's your king. Here's the deal. You can't follow Jesus until you accept him. And when I say accept him, that means whatever he says next, you've already accepted even before he says it. But that leads me to a second thing that is incredibly important. You cannot be forgiven unless you accept him. You can't be forgiven unless you accept him. I'm not talking about sitting down in a corner and praying a prayer when you're four years old saying, oh Jesus, I accept you into my heart and then that's the last time you think about Jesus. What I'm saying is when you accept him, that means you accept him as him as him, not the pieces of him that you know. And you're gonna learn some things about Jesus today that are gonna be hard to accept. This acceptance is difficult to do. Let me take you into what Matthew does here. In chapter 12, verse 15. Look with me at this. It says, aware of this, that just means aware of verse 14, where the Pharisees were planning to kill Jesus. Jesus is aware the Pharisees are planning to kill him. And so aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory." In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is another one of those passages where I'm going to spend a significant portion of our time here early on, okay? Because something just happened in what Matthew quoted here that I want to help you realize. Remember, Matthew has been quoting a lot of the Old Testament. Matthew is the guy that is writing his gospel to people, his his book here. He is writing it to people who know that the name of David in Hebrew equals the number 14. Not many people know that. Only like super Jews, like really interested Jews who pay attention to the details of the Old Testament. Only those sorts of people know these kinds of things. And Matthew is writing to those sorts of people. And he now quotes Isaiah. But what is fascinating is that when he quotes the Old Testament, as we have seen, most of the time he is quoting a passage verbatim, right? There's been one time that we've seen where he just quoted a general concept. He said this is to fulfill something, and then he mentioned something that is not found in the Old Testament at all. And so we concluded he was, he was actually quoting this general concept that shows up many times in the Old Testament. But this one here, it's half a direct quote and half not. What's weird about this passage is that Matthew is mostly quoting from the four first verses of Isaiah 42. Mostly. But he's not entirely quoting it exactly. I'm going to show you a little bit of 42 in just a little bit. But I want to highlight for you, and this is is some notes you probably want to write down. I want to highlight for you the four things that Matthew says here that are essential for you to, to remember, okay? There are no blanks. It's just four things. You'll notice in verse 18, the Holy Spirit has been put on Jesus. So the first thing you need to know is that Jesus has the Spirit of God on him. You already knew that from the day of Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit descended on him, but that makes a big difference in the rest of chapter 12. So just keep that in mind. The Holy Spirit of God is on Jesus. Next, you need to see that Jesus is gentle. 
It says he's not going to be the one to quarrel or cry out. He's not going to be the one to put a bullhorn on his mouth in the middle of the street. He's a person where it says a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's going to be gentle, but number three, he's only going to be gentle until it's time for victory. Notice that, till he has brought justice through to victory. He is going to work justice all the way through to some point of victory. So he's going to be gentle until the moment of justice comes. And then the last thing is he is going to be the hope for all the nations. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And this is a passage I want to show you. I'll put it up here on the screen so you can see it again. Matthew says, in his name, the nations will put their hope. What's really, really interesting about this verse is that it is really, really different from the verse in Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42 verse 4, the verse says this, in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Flip back to the previous one. In his name, the nations will put their hope. In Isaiah, in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Okay. Let me explain this a little bit to you. First of all, there are two changes that you can see. They're obvious. The change goes from name to teaching. The change goes from nations to islands. In the Old Testament passage, it's islands. In the New Testament, Matthew's quote, it's nations. In the Old Testament, it's teaching. In Matthew's quote, it's name. Okay, so let's start with the nations one because this one is easier. The islands. In Isaiah, he says the islands will put their hope. Now, this one's really easy because islands for the ancient Israel people was a metaphor for all the people who weren't Jews. Think about this. The Jewish people lived in Palestine. If any of you have had any geography, you know that Palestine is the strip of land on the side of the Mediterranean Sea. It is not in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. There are no islands that belong to Palestine. It's just this strip of land on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. That's it. And it's just a bit of land. There are islands in the Mediterranean Sea, but Jews don't live there. And so when Jewish people refer to the islands, they are referring to people who are not Jews. They're referring to all those nations. Even It's like they were to say that the, even the islands put their hope in this one. So we've got a Messiah, and even the islands are going to put their hope in him, which means all the nations of the world. So islands was a metaphor for nations, and that's why Matthew, he doesn't just give us the word, because in Matthew's day, there are Jews living on islands. In Matthew's day, there are Jews who live on the island of Crete and the island of Sicily in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So in Matthew's day, he has to translate it from the metaphor into the meaning, and so Matthew gives us nations. That makes perfect sense. It's also just an interesting side note that the word in Greek that we translate nations is exactly the same word we translate Gentiles. If you ever see the word Gentile, the Greek underneath it is the word nation. If you ever see the word nation, the Greek underneath it is the word Gentile. They're completely the same word in the New Testament. But that's, Matthew is trying to translate this for his listeners. Now, the the more difficult one is the teaching one. In Isaiah, we read the word teaching. And that's because the ancient scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, were originally written in Hebrew. But about a hundred years or so before Jesus, They translated them into Greek because Greek was more commonly spoken for those people than was Hebrew. And so they translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek. 
And then we lost all of the Hebrew ones. There was a text tradition that sort of been, was maintained, but none of those Hebrew scriptures lasted to the modern day. The oldest Hebrew scriptures we have are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they date from around the time of Jesus to after Jesus. And so the Septuagint, which is what this Greek translation is called, is actually the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we have. And the Septuagint, the Greek version, says in his name. But the Hebrew version that we call the Masoretic text has in his teaching. Now, here's why that's important. Scholars have no idea which one was the older rendition. Maybe the Hebrew scripture records an older tradition, or maybe the Greek one records an older tradition, we don't know. So which one is older? We don't know. Which one did Matthew choose? We know. Matthew chose in his name. And this is why that's important. Aside from this verse in the Old Testament, 100% of the time, the phrase in his name shows up in the Old Testament It's talking about God. 100% of the time, the phrase in his name shows up in the Old Testament. It's talking about God. So is it any wonder that the Hebrew writers of the Hebrew text writing years after Jesus might want to change the Isaiah passage from in his name, which is clearly talking about the Messiah, to a passage that says in his teaching, because in his teaching is a much more tame thing to say about the Messiah than in his name. But Matthew says in his name because Matthew is trying to make a point. Jesus is God in the flesh and humanity's only hope. Jesus is God in the flesh and humanity's only hope. This is Matthew's point. If you don't get anything else out of this, you have to come to grips with this statement. Matthew is trying to communicate to us and to his hearers that Jesus is not just a human being. He is God in the flesh and humanity's only hope. Listen, there are all kinds of difficulties with this, not in terms of textual difficulties or understanding difficulties, but living out difficulties. People have such a hard time accepting this truth. Some people can't accept that Jesus is God. And they will say, oh no, there's never a time when Jesus actually said, I am God. Uh, Well, he didn't have to, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. He does say it many, many times in ways that you or I, who are not Jews, would not pick up, but the Jews definitely did. Remember, the, the Jews wanted to kill him because what he was saying was so outlandish. Jesus definitely does claim to be God, but some people are like, oh no, I, I can't accept that Jesus is actually God. He's just a good moral teacher, or he's just a, a good moral example for us. Or some other people might say, no, 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 I can accept that Jesus might be divine in some way, but I can't accept that he's the only way to God. I mean, God certainly works in different ways with different people, and there are some people who've never heard the name of Jesus, but God can still work in their lives, and so it's not that Jesus is the only way. I mean, clearly God has to have some other way for people to go, and so you might accept the fact that Jesus is God, or you might accept the fact that Jesus is the only way, but it's hard to accept both of these things at the same time. But the truth of the matter is, if you are a Christian today, if you're a church person today, you might find these things easy. It's easy to accept Jesus as God. It's easy to accept Jesus as the only way to God. I'm a Christian. I've chosen that way. But you know what's hard for you? 
to accept that Jesus is a gentle king and that he has no interest in bringing victory into your life on the earth because Jesus has an interest of bringing grace into your life on the earth. And one of these days, Jesus will bring victory himself on the earth. But right now, he is a gentle king. Later on, he will be a victorious judge. And I think for a lot of Christians, especially in America today, that's the part that we have a hard time accepting. But here's the point. You can't accept Jesus for being God in the flesh and then for some reason reject Jesus as being a gentle king. Let's just admit the fact that if Jesus is God in the flesh, then nothing else is up to you or to me to make a decision about what kind of Jesus we want to follow. We are no longer allowed to adopt Jesus as our own. He is God in the flesh. We are no longer allowed to adapt Jesus for ourselves. He is God in the flesh. If he is God in the flesh, come to earth as humanity's only hope, then our only response to him is to accept him for who he is and let him take charge. So then the question is, can you? What Matthew does next in the rest of chapter 12, and we'll go through this quickly, what he does next in chapter 12 is he gives us three things that you need to get in order to take this deep into your soul. Number one, he's going to talk about Jesus' power, and he's going to claim that Jesus' power comes directly from God, that Jesus wields the power of God, and he gives us some evidence to prove that Jesus is wielding the power of God. So before you can even accept that Jesus is God in the flesh, you have to accept that Jesus has the power of God. And so that's what Matthew tries to demonstrate to us. The next thing Matthew wants us to do is to understand the consequences of rejecting Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you are going to face some incredibly bad judgment. Particularly, you are going to be captive to Satan. And thirdly, if you accept Jesus then you will be welcomed into his family. Let's race through it. Here we go. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Now we're at verse 22. So they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Let's just understand how incredibly significant that is. If the person is blind and mute, that means he has never heard human speech, right? Never once has he heard human speech. Helen Keller was blind and also deaf, okay? So she was blind and deaf, but she got that way later on in her life. She was like four or five or something when she got sick that took away her sight and her hearing. So she had heard voices when she was really little. But this guy, he can't talk. He's never experienced human speech. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people are astonished. And they say, could this be the son of David? Son of David, remember, is code word for Messiah. He was the, he was the heir of David. And so they're asking, could this guy really be the Messiah? I think it's pretty obvious by this point that he could be, but you know, they're asking the question. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out Demons. Beelzebul was a, a, a mythical name character that they gave for a demon 
that they thought was sort of the prince of the other demons. Maybe they were using Beelzebul as a name for Satan himself. Maybe they were using Beelzebul as the name of an underling of Satan. We don't know. Beelzebul doesn't show up in the Old Testament. There's no part of the Bible where we are told Satan's actual name is Beelzebul. We just know the Pharisees thought that Jesus was doing his work by the power of Satan himself or the power of some demon. Jesus, verse 25, knew their thoughts. Now, that right there. He knows their thoughts. Um, Let's just remind ourselves for the moment that Jesus knows our thoughts. Now, if that's not enough to just kind of freak you out a little bit, I think, um, you know, we all need to wake up there somewhat. Jesus knows their thoughts. Keep reading. And said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your people drive them out? Because the Pharisees tried to drive out demons too. And sometimes it appeared that they were successful. And so now Jesus is pointing the finger at them and says, oh, are you using satanic powers also? Is that what you guys are doing too? And of course they would not want to go in that direction. But anyway, he says, so then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, hang on a second. If, if I am using satanic power to attack satanics to attack satan's forces then satan is the dumbest person on the planet because if i am using satan's power against him even if i'm trying to like trick you he's still being weakened And so clearly it makes no sense for you to say that Jesus is using Satan's power against these demons. I mean, just remember those demons that ran into the pigs and then took the pigs off the cliff that we saw a couple weeks ago. That was, those demons were pretty freaked out, pretty scared of who Jesus is. But keep reading just a little bit farther. It says this, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. What Jesus says there is, if you have a strong person in his house, the only way for you to steal his stuff is to be stronger than he is, tie him up, and then steal his stuff. Jesus says, have you noticed I've been stealing Satan's stuff? Satan's got all these people under his control, and I'm stealing the people back. The only way I could be taking Satan's stuff is if I'm stronger than Satan. Jesus' claim right here is that he is stronger than Satan, but there was that one little line in the previous section that I just want to highlight for you. Where Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. Do you realize that Jesus doesn't claim to do these these things under his own power? Have you ever been in that place where you think, well, sure, Jesus Jesus could live a life without sin because he's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. I mean, of course, God can't sin. Have you ever thought, well, of course Jesus could do these amazing things and he can be brave when he's talking to people and he can endure suffering because he's God in the flesh. He's got all this power at his disposal. Did you ever realize that Jesus never once uses his own power for himself? 
He does everything he does by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he specifically says, I am using the Spirit's power. Do you know that you have the same power in you? If you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus had in him, if I do things by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's just one more really interesting thing I want to show you here. I don't know if you picked up on it, but Jesus has referred to himself so far in this chapter by the phrase, Son of Man, a number of times. The Son of Man is an interesting phrase. Because Son of Man, to you and me, sounds like human. But Jesus specifically uses that phrase because of a verse in Daniel. I want to show it to you real quick. This is just a tiny little detour that will make sense in just a little bit. We'll put it up on the screen here. In Daniel, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Okay. He sees a vision of a son of man. Now, before this, in chapter 7, Daniel has seen a vision of the throne room of God. He refers to God as the ancient of days sitting on his throne. He says this, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Okay, so here's a son of man who is approaching God on his throne, is being led into his presence. Keep going. He says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is a statement from Daniel that says, here's a guy who looks human, who is allowed to enter the presence of God, who the whole world will worship, and whose kingdom never ends. I just want to highlight for you that Jesus calls himself Son of Man as a code word for saying Son of God. More than Son of God, God in the Son. God in the flesh. Jesus says Son of Man to mean I'm God standing right here in front of you. That's what it is. The one who is king and worthy of worship. Back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 real quick. It says this, make a tree good. Excuse me, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Have you ever heard the phrase, the unforgivable sin? This is it. Jesus has just told you that there is a particular sin that God will never forgive. That sin, Jesus calls, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. He says, you can say anything you want against the Son of Man, but you can't say anything against the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? I have encountered so many people, so many people who are worried that they have, they have somehow accidentally said the unforgivable sin. They have somehow accidentally committed the unforgivable sin. In fact, in some cultures of the world, they will actually hold people up at gunpoint or knife point or some other form of torture or something at the risk of their life, and they will tell them that they need to disavow Jesus with their words 
And then those people, sometimes they actually do, and then they feel so racked with guilt after that, even though they're still alive, they so, they're so racked with guilt after that that they can't possibly come to forgive themselves or think that Jesus might forgive them. And they wonder if they have committed the unforgivable sin. Some people have worried, have I accidentally said something against the Holy Spirit? I did when I was younger. You know, my family went to a church where we didn't speak in tongues. Other churches did speak in tongues. And so one time I said something negative about a person who was speaking in tongues. And then I was wondering, if that actually is the Holy Spirit, then I've just said something against the Holy Spirit. And maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin. And I was scared for a while. And I was scared for a while. But Jesus actually gives us a really interesting answer to this. Keep reading just a little farther, verse 33. He says, excuse me, verse, verse, yeah, 33. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And you're saying, Jesus, what are you talking about fruit? I was freaked out about this whole unforgivable sin thing. And Jesus says, hang on, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? Now he's talking about speaking, right? He just talked about speaking something against the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about speaking still. He says, how can you say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You see that? The words refer to the heart. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. That's what he means. He means that speaking against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin because speaking reveals the heart. So the issue isn't what words you said. The issue is what's in your heart. If your heart is opposed to the Holy Spirit somehow, then your heart is unforgivable. Now this is a really interesting kind of idea. Because where is the Holy Spirit in this passage? Did you notice him? He is on Jesus, according to Isaiah, He is the power behind the miracles, according to Jesus. And the people are accusing Jesus of doing something by some other power. See, here's the thing. The unforgivable sin is when you see the work of God happening right there in Jesus, and you reject it. The unforgivable sin is when you reject the work of God right there in the life of Jesus. And you say, oh, no, he's just a human. Oh, no, he's just a lucky person. It's a coincidence that he asked that guy to stand up right before the guy had enough strength to stand up. Oh, it's no big deal. He's just a good teacher. We do this all the time. We think of Jesus in these small things. And if you think of Jesus as just a good teacher, well, then you'll treat him like every other teacher. You'll take the things that he says that you like and you'll do them and you'll take the things that he says that you don't like and you'll forget them. If you think Jesus is a moral leader, you'll treat him just like you treat every other moral leader. When they do the thing that makes sense to you, you're going to do that thing. And when they do the thing that doesn't make sense to you, you're not going to follow them in that thing. If you treat Jesus like just another something or other, then he is just going to be another something or other. And that, my friends is an unforgivable sin. Literally, Jesus is saying that you cannot be forgiven unless you accept Jesus for who He is. 
God in the flesh, the hope of humankind, gentle now, vengeful later. Now, I, I imagine some of you, like me, are feeling a little bit of worry or fear. Have I truly accepted Jesus as the ultimate God in the flesh king? Am I following him with my complete life? Or have I just viewed him as kind of a good teacher? Or have I viewed him just as kind of a good moral instructor? What, have I actually fully accepted Jesus? And, and you might be worried about that, and I want to let you know. Jesus is actually speaking more to you than he is to the people who have committed the unforgivable sin. Because any sin, every sin, according to Jesus, any sin and every sin can be forgiven just by accepting the work of God in the life of Jesus. When you say, Jesus, you're God, and that's all I need to know. Jesus, you are the one I'm going to worship. Jesus, you're the one I'm going to follow. Jesus, you're the one I'm going to treat as my Lord. When you get to that place where you can say, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are God in the flesh, you are the hope of humankind, even though you might be gentle now, even though you might miss all of my expectations, Jesus, I'm just going to accept you for who you are. I'm not going to try to adapt you or adopt you. I'm not going to try to change you into my view of you. I'm not going to leverage your teaching so that I look better. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Jesus, I'm just going to accept you for who you are. If that's you, all the sins can be forgiven. That sounds pretty encouraging to me. But there's a warning Jesus gives. It says, verse 38, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. (laughs) Okay, Jesus, if you really are God in the flesh, if you're really claiming all these things, then do a miracle as if he didn't just do one, okay? But let's roll with it, okay? Then they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. What Jesus is saying there in this moment, he says, okay, you ask for a sign, the the lady from the south, the queen of the south, she didn't need a sign, she just wanted to hear Solomon. And guess what? The people of Nineveh, they didn't need a sign. They just did what Jonah told them. He said, repent or God's going to get you. They didn't need a sign. But Jesus says, I'm greater than all those people and I will give you a sign. Here's my sign. I'm going to die and rise again. That's what he said. He said, the Son of Man is going to be buried in the heart of the earth for three days. He said, here's your sign. I'm going to die and rise again. If I pull this one off, then we're clear. If I don't pull this one off, then you're free. But if I pull this one off, then we're clear on who I really am. You you don't need any more proof. All you need is this. Did he pull it off? Keep reading. It says this. 
When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through hard, it goes through arid and arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus says, if I cast out a spirit from a person, and that spirit, then that person gets their life in order, but then for some reason that spirit comes back, that evil spirit will come back with friends. And then that person will be worse off than before. Jesus is not saying this to warn you that demonic possession might somehow just randomly overtake you. That's not what he's saying. He's making a point about something that demons would try to do with a person so that Jesus can make a point about the generation. The generation. And he says, this generation is like that. I have showed up. And I am pushing the forces of evil away. And I'm getting things cleaned up around here. But one of these days I'm going to go. And when I go, these evil forces are going to look for an opportunity to come back. And they're going to come back in force. And if you aren't with me, then you will be infested and controlled by all of these demonic forces. See, Jesus' warning to them is quite clear. He says, if you reject me, you are captive to Satan. He can do basically anything he wants to do with you. But here's the good news. If you receive him, if you accept him, you are welcomed into his family. Take a look at this. This is the end of the chapter. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Oh, well, mom's here. Remember, the Virgin Mary, this incredible woman that God chose to be the, the mother of the Messiah, God in the flesh. I mean, incredible. And so she's standing outside. Jesus, you need to pay attention to your mom. I mean, do whatever your mom wants you to do. This is what Jesus actually does. He replied to him, who's my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, there's one major difference between his biological mother and brothers and these other people. His mom and brothers hadn't been following him. These other people had. We're told in one of the other Gospels that Mary, in fact, refers to Jesus as being out of his mind. She's worried about him. She's not following him. She's not accepting him. The brothers aren't accepting him. Listen, if your brother told you he was God in the flesh, would you accept him? I mean, seriously. He's still your brother, but you're going to unfollow that guy. Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, and his mother and brothers are not so sure about that. And they don't, they're not in the room. They're coming to the house. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Everyone who accepts me is my family. Do you want to be in the family of God? Accept Jesus for who he is. For who he is. Not what you think he should be. Not what you want him to be. Not what you've grown up to assume him to be. Not the portions of Jesus that make sense to you. Not the portions of Jesus that are going to get your advantage against your enemies. But you're going to accept Jesus for who he is. He's God in the flesh. And you are just going to accept him. Here's the thing. We need to embrace this statement. 
to say we just accept him, whatever he is, and he is God in the flesh, and he is our only hope. Let me draw this down to you just in a really practical kind of way. There are so many times in the life of a Christian where we get the things of Christianity and the things of our culture and the things of our desires intertwined. My culture is like this. My desires are like this. My Christianity is like this. And we get them intertwined. Have you ever thought about the fact that you attend a church that plays music you like? Have you ever thought about the fact that you attend a church who sometimes the preacher says something that resonates with you? Have you ever thought about the fact that you attend a church and when you list all the reasons you attend that church, the majority of those reasons are personal preferences or cultural experiences? We are all like this. But we have to be people, if we're going to accept Jesus on his terms, we have to be people who at least at some points in our lives are willing to say, I don't want to do that, but Jesus does that. And if Jesus is going to be the gentle Messiah who later on will bring judgment, then I've got to, bring, I've got to be the gentle Christian who later on brings judgment. If Jesus is going to be the person who brings good news to the people, then I need to be a person who brings good news to people. I need to accept Jesus for who he is and not just who I want him to be. That's why we take communion. One of the most amazing things about communion is that food is dangerous. Until you put it in your mouth, you don't know if it's good. I've had things that smell good, but then you taste them and it's like, whoa. I've also had things that smelled bad and then you taste them and you're like, whoa. But food is one of these things that you just have to accept. Now granted, some of you, I know I do this sometimes too, you get a piece of gristle in your mouth and then you get that napkin up and you're like... Get rid, of that, get rid of that thing, and then you hide it underneath the table and hope the dog doesn't you know, come up to you. And, and that's the nasty thing. You kind of spit out, and you, know, you get rid of it. But here's the deal. When you eat something, you have committed to it. You no longer have authority to decide which part of that thing you want. I want all the calories, but I don't want any of the flavor. I want all the flavor, but I don't want any of the calories. You don't, have, you don't get that choice. You don't get to make that choice. Communion is this amazing symbol where Jesus says, what I want you to do is accept me. This piece of bread symbolizes Jesus' body. Broken for you, the only thing you do is take and eat. You don't evaluate. You don't decide. You don't question. You don't portion. You just take and eat. This cup, this grape juice or wine that Jesus had, he said, This is my body, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this. You don't drink part of it. You don't just drink the alcohol part and leave all the rest of it. You don't just drink the sugar part and leave all the rest of it. You don't just drink the purple part and then end up with water at the end. You just drink. You just accept. You just take it in. So today, 
As we share in communion with each other, whether you're doing it at home or here in person, I want you to to receive the elements of communion in the same way you receive Jesus, to just simply say, whatever it is that you are, Jesus, I accept that. We're using little oyster crackers and grape juice. I want to warn you, it's not alcoholic, and the, the oyster crackers, they do have gluten in them, okay? So I just want to, I want to warn you that there are some things that you just get with the territory. There is no alcohol in the grape juice, and there is gluten in the cracker that we have here, and that's just the way it is. And that's just the way Jesus is. You just accept it. For some of you, you've accepted a portion of Jesus your whole life. For some of you, you've rejected Jesus your whole life. But I want to invite you today to fully accept him for who he is and say, Jesus, it doesn't matter what you say next. I'm already in. Say, Jesus, it doesn't matter what you say next. I will not unfollow you. Say, Jesus, it doesn't matter how you disappoint me. I will not leave you. And say, Jesus, it doesn't matter if I want to go in direction A, I'm still going to go in your direction, wherever that may be. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.